If you brought a Bible or want to grab one, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I can't believe y'all came to church today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Back in the day, it was popular to say um, that so-and-so has trust issues. You ever said that about somebody or know that someone said that about you? The connotation of that is that there's someone they're kind of peculiar. They're not like the rest of us. They've been wounded. They've got trust issues. But in our day, I think it could be safe to say that we all have trust issues. Those who study this say that distrust has grown significantly. We, we distrust authority. We distrust institutions. We distrust each other. Historians, certain historians, have pointed to uh, a reality or time in history during Nixon and Watergate and the crime and the cover-up. And they say from that time in American history, we've seen a significant dip in trust, a rise in the distrust, and it's carried its way through to President Clinton, uh, what is the definition of is, is, et cetera, et cetera. And we've uh, been opened up to a new world of leaders and truth-tellers and people in power uh, brought about by the uh, widespread usage of, of media and getting you know, a front row seat into this. So historians say, hey, here's when it really, really took a downturn, our trust for one another, our trust in authority and institutions and, and even in each other. Uh, psychologists will, will point to the fact that uh, we have this barrage of information and we divide people into victims and the, the, the oppressors and it's just easy for us to see people in power wanting to keep their power because many times people in power want to keep their power. And so they slant the information. They slant what everything that they're saying uh, to keep themselves uh, having influence in the lives of other people. Sociologists tell us that this dip in trust, it, happened, it happens because we've had seen a shift in tight communities, in tight networks of of people. Pollsters tell us uh, some facts about this shift. In fact, a Gallup poll, I, I have a lot of respect uh, for those guys. They did a poll last year coming out of what we've all come out of and what we experienced, particularly in the summer of 2020. And they listed and surveyed related to 15 uh, institutions. Um, those institutions were small business and military, the police, the medical uh, systems, uh, organized religion or church, organized labor, public schools, banks, um, large pharmaceutical companies, large technology companies, the Supreme Court, the criminal justice system, uh, the presidency, television, news, media, and Congress. I think I named 15 that the Gallup poll did. Now, would you guess uh, which of those would be the lowest? What would be the lowest? If all those 15 that I named, I don't expect you to remember all of them, but did anything stand out? What would be the lowest? Our trust level, the lowest trust level we have would be in who? Who would you guess? The lowest two would be the television news media. That's second uh, lowest. And the lowest would be Congress. The highest of these 15, according to this survey, um, was the police. Um, now this, I know that sounds a little different, a little, maybe what you weren't expecting, but the military, 
uh, and small businesses was rated really high. And small business, uh, perhaps we value, despite our distrust, we value entrepreneurship. With the military, uh, we have value and loyalty and, and courage. With the police, this is divided along some socioeconomic things, but uh, I guess we've uh, been living in fear and we want to renew a commitment uh, to what we want to trust in, what we hope uh, would be good. And so distrust is growing. It affects our relationships. If you're in leadership, then you're affected by this. Uh, everybody, and everybody's a leader to some extent. You guys know that I often quote one of my mentors, Bill Bright. He said, everybody's a leader. Uh, some people lead tens of people. Some lead hundreds. Some, leads a th- a th- some lead a thousands, thousands of people. And others have in history led millions or more people. But we're all leaders. And if you're in leadership, whatever you're leading, your small group, your family, uh, your office group at work, whatever it might be, uh, you know that there's a burden that you bear because of the lack of trust that we have in each other. Chuck DeGroote wrote a book that a couple of you have heard me talk about. He wrote this book a few years back. It's entitled, When Narcissists Come to Church. And it is a book that I recommend if, if you've had church hurt or you're in leadership or you're concerned about the future of the church. But I was pleasantly surprised by the, by the Gallup poll survey. Now, it did show that Trust in church leadership is slipping a bit, but it's still kind of in the medium to higher range of those 15 uh, delineated institutions of that survey. But in the church, um, there's been given a new title called Church Hurt. And in some ways, it's a little bit trite for people because there could be trauma. In this book, When Narcissists Go to Church, he talks about uh, the mediation that, this, that he and a team of people would have. They're highly sought after. And one particular mediation he was doing with a large network of churches, if I said the pastor's name, you've heard of him. And they were doing this um, investigation that resulted in termination. And on the table, they found out there were these non-disclosure agreements. And in the process of learning about the conflict that was behind it all, um, they discovered abuse and control and scare tactics in the house of God, in a network of churches that was publicly famous and, and global in a sense. And in this, uh, the, the leader gave a statement. And in the statement, he said, you know, so-and-so's resigned and we're having these meetings and we're doing this, we're making these changes because of, quote-unquote, a, a clash of leadership styles. And Chuck DeGroote in his book, When Narcissists Come to Church, says this is not a clash in leadership styles, but controlling and bullying and scaring people is not a leadership style. That's a sin. That's a sin that hurts people. And in the survey, they've seen, and maybe you're a story of this. I've seen it myself to some extent, but you have trauma. People have trauma in their bodies and in their brains result of this. There's families that have been hurt, people that have been terminated, and they've lost relationship capital. They've lost relationships entirely. There's sleeplessness and paranoia and pain. And we, the very institution that Jesus instituted, said the gates of hell will not prevail, has growing pains and has problems and has to face what we're talking about today. And so when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is going to talk to us about bad leaders and good leaders. He's going to talk to us about what, um, what bad leaders can do to a church. 
and what good leaders, why good leaders are needed and what a good leader looks like. So I hope you'll join me now. Uh, if you have your open Bible, that'd be even good as I'll make some references to it. And then you know Robert Green is going to have it on the screen. 1 Corinthians 4. A person uh, should think of us in this way as servants of Christ, as managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes. Who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts, and then praise will come to each one from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose of this is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You're already full. You're already rich. He's being sarcastic in verse 8. You have begun to reign as kings without us, and I wish you did reign so that you could also reign, so we could also reign with you. Verse 9, for I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. Sarcasm, verse part B, we are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed. We are roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He's my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? I want to give you some traits of a bad leader that we just read about here. Take a look, if you will. A bad leader is filled with pride. It says such in verse 6 and 7. They're arrogant, and they're saying what they already have in verse 8. A bad leader is presumptuous. A bad leader is wise in their own eyes. A bad leader is well thought of by the world. And that's a little tricky as a lot of this is in 1 Corinthians 4. In fact, when Paul is given characteristics of how leaders, what, what leadership possess in order to lead in the church, they, uh, Paul says that they should be a, you know, well thought of. They should have a good reputation with outsiders. So that's not a contradiction. We just have to understand the context of what he's saying here. So if you're, listen to me, if you're leading in the church, if you're leading in Fondra Church and I'm your pastor, I want you to have a good reputation with outsiders. Colossians 4, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's important to me. More importantly than that, it's important to Jesus. It's important to our church. It matters. That really, really does matter. So you should 
ultimately be concerned about your character in Christ, but your reputation in many ways is going to reflect that. So walk in a manner and have a good reputation with outsiders. But here he's talking about a living a life of being distinguished, of seeking the world's approval. And a bad leader will move away from an audience of one to, to please the crowd. In fact, to the church in Galatia, where they were confusing the gospel, they began to subvert the gospel and preach a false gospel. He says in chapter 1 and verse 10, For do I now seek the favor of men or of Christ? If I seek the favor of men, if I'm trying to please people, I'm not a servant of Christ. That's a pretty clear dichotomy, folks. And so for us, we need to see this is the essence of bad leadership. Our pride, our presumption. Uh, they're using, Paul uses the word a couple of times to describe what they've been saying. Hey, we're, we're already there. No, you're not. No, you're not. Don't presume the future. Be careful. Even Paul would say, hey, if the Lord wills, you haven't arrived. You don't have currently all that you need. Uh, and you need to, as he would say in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't presume uh, it'll get you off course. They're wise in their own eyes, not looking to Christ uh, for counsel. So those are traits of a bad leader. Pride can get us. Presumption can get us. Not having a multitude of counselors around us who give us a 360 of where we are, that can, that can hurt us. Seeking to, to, to please the crowd can, can hurt us. You've heard me say this probably several times, but man, that is a needle to a vein that will never satisfy if you're seeking to please the crowd, if you're living for the approval of other people. It can be a very, very tricky thing, but can I just tell you, I think we, you have a conscience, you have the, if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and it's really quick in my life. Now, when, when I confess it and when I seek to repent and when I see change is a different matter. But it, th that conviction comes really quick in my life when I know that I'm not being as bold and courageous as I need to be and I'm preaching for the crowd, I'm seeking approval from other people, or I don't want to uh, preach the hard truth or say the hard thing or take a stand when I need to. And that's, that's a sign of a bad leader. And the church back then and even today, I would even say especially today, needs leaders who will have courage and boldness who will preach and lead and teach and pastor and love and counsel and pursue justice for an audience of one and not for the crowd. So take a snapshot of that. These are bad leaders. And the church gets hurt by proud people. Uh, not when not, by the way, in, in Chuck DeGroat's book, if any of you read it, I'd love to get your response to it. But uh, in the book, he talks about it, how a congregation is in some way systematically set up to feed the egos of leaders. And how uh, empty, if, if, if empty selves gather on Sunday mornings, if pathetic Christians, uh, uh, passive Christians look to a leader, then one ego or a few egos are going to be fed and then other people are going to uh, perpetuate this, this narcissism and abuse of power and bullying and scare tactics and control can be the results. The absolute opposite of the cruciform, of the cross of the way of Jesus, which is really the heartbeat of this letter in Corinth. Corinth, the church was in this culture where they had lost, uh, the church was losing the value of the cruciform, losing the value of, of humility, of a life poured out. And the leaders were beginning to think, hey, this is a platform that I have. And the people, you see this in all the first four chapters, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, or Peter, uh, the, here are these leaders and they were following them and looking to them. And it was perpetuating unhealth and we see it in our 
day. So let's be careful of these signs of bad leaders. So I'm going to give you four traits, not on the same screen, but I'm going to give you four traits that we see that a good leader should be. The first is this, a good leader um, is a servant. Here's the, if, you, if your Bible is open, verse 1, says, he says just that very thing. He says, we're, we're servants. And oftentimes, here, let me show you the Greek word. There's two Greek, really, th- there's three Greek words in the New Testament that are used for slave or servant. The first one is the most common one in all of the New Testament. But the one, Hypertus here, the second one is what he uses here. And the, the connotations to the church at Corinth, passing this on to you, the connotations are um, to be a helper. You are, as a servant, a good leader is a servant. A good leader is a helper. A good leader is an assistant. A good leader doesn't make it about them. A good leader, to put it another way, realizes that it's about somebody else. If you're a helper or you're an assistant, some of you, maybe that's your full-time vocation. You're an assistant to so-and-so. And you know that you get outside of your pay grade. You get out of your lane if you start making it about you. If you look to assert authority or draw attention to yourself, uh, you're going to do your job better for the company uh, better for everybody involved if you realize you're there to help this person, to help that woman, to help that man, to be their helper, to be, that, to be their assistant. You ever known anybody who uh, it's not about them, but they make it about them? There's like a, a scenario, like you walk in a room and no one's gathered for them, but they make it about them. They, they invite everybody into their emotional orbit and they create drama and a scenario and draw attention to themselves. They made it about themselves, but it's not about them. When Rick Warren wrote a book that would become the best-selling nonfiction hardback uh, book ever written, Purpose Driven Life, he started with those very words, it's not about you. And a servant gets that. So a good leader understands that it's not about them. My man JTB, John the Baptist, uh, demonstrates this for us so well. If you know your uh, Gospels, you'll know that uh, John the Baptist was there, and John the Baptist had a following. Now, when the Beatles came to, in the 60s to America, and they landed on our soil, and, and they um, showed up on the Ed Sullivan Show, one of them boasted that they were more popular than Jesus. Um, no. John the Baptist, for a time, was more popular. But Jesus comes on the scene. John the Baptist was a, a trailblazer for Jesus. He, he had gone before him, but then when Jesus showed up, he started garnering a lot of attention. And people would come to John the Baptist and they would say to him, hey, does it bother you that so-and-so is getting more attention? By the way, can we just stop there for a second? Are you bothered if somebody in your circle gets more attention? I mean, if that's you, how long do you want to live that way? Can I just tell you how unhappy, I mean, if you want to be miserable in life, then seek to always be the center of attention in every scenario. Some of the happiest people I know, well, I will say this, the happiest people I know are not proud people, they're humble people. And I think of some of the happiest people I know, they're helpers, they're assistants, they're not looking for the glory, the stage, or the spotlight. They understand the call to follow Jesus, the call to follow Jesus is not the stage and a spotlight, it's a basin, and it's a towel, and it's water, and it's washing feet. And that's this word. Listen, for us, you, you know, 
a seminary person translates it for, for you, for most of you, but this word means help or assistant. They got it in Corinth. They understood, and it was vastly different than how they were structuring their lives. They, were, they had erected a ladder, and they were climbing it, and Paul's like, no, 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 remember Jesus. Hey, church leaders, we are counting on you to remember the way of Jesus. And remember what John the Baptist would say in John 3.30? I love it. Some of you know this. He said, he must increase. I must decrease. Let me, let me at least quote the verse right. I must de- decrease so that he would increase. How much of you do you want to make it about it? Here's the wonderful thing about the Christ-centered life. If you make it about you, you're, gonna, you're, you're, just, you're launching yourself into the depths of misery. And you're missing the life that God has for you. But if you make it about him, you're going to know this paradoxical happiness of losing your life in Christ for a greater purpose than what you thought on your own. I have a friend, a young man, very young man. He's 25, 26 years old, I think. And he was telling me a couple of months ago that he bought a tuxedo. And I was laughing at him. Any guesses? Why would my friend who's 25, why would he buy a tuxedo? You'll get this. He's, he's just going to all these weddings. And he was telling me about being like in his 30th wedding or something. And I'm like, dude, you got too many friends. And he's been the best friend in a couple, and the, the best man rather in a couple, and then the, the one he has next month, he'll be the best man there. The best man at a wedding in our day really is just the person who stands next to the groom. And usually uh, in a lot of weddings I do that, best man is the one who hands the ring to the preacher, who hands the rings to the, to the bride and groom. But in Jewish society, the best man, there was a little more to it. Uh, you can delve into this and study it if you research it. But the best man had, had roles to play for the wedding, uh, the, the wedding day, the moment of the vows and such. But all week, and the best man was there to support. There was a variety of roles that the best man had simply to support, to be the help, to be an assistant for the groom. The best man knew that it wasn't about the best man. It was about the groom. Really, it's about the bride. But you understand. And when Paul says this, Hypertest, this word of servant, he's saying uh, a good leader understands they're a helper. A good leader understands they're an assistant. Listen, this applies to me. I know some of you are thinking, ah, oh, you hypocrite, you're up there with your shiny bald head and preaching and the spotlight and you know, public attention, da 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 da. Listen, this applies to me. But many times over, um, I've seen people in my position fall. This past week, a couple of you know this, you saw him in my office, but he came and he's been hurt by people in my role and he lives out of state and he said, Robert, you're the only pastor I trust, which is terrible on his judgment, isn't it? But I'm not his pastor. And I took that for a moment. It kind of built the ego for a few seconds. It made me appreciate the relationship I have with him and I thought about the hurt that these other leaders have brought in his life. And it's important for me, it's important for you to make sure we have regular rhythms in our life, to make sure that we know that we're just helpers and we're just assistants. For me, it's interesting when other people preach is a time to say, I decrease so that others can increase and ultimately uh, Jesus. When you send me uh, an Andy Stanley sermon or Stephen Furtick or somebody like that. You know, that's a way for me to do. De- I, I have to act happy that you have other preachers that are better than me. Uh, I decrease so that uh, others can increase so that Jesus 
uh, can increase, when I get time away, when I give money away, when we decide to give sacrificially because I can't be a hypocrite and ask you to give when we don't give. I can't call you to systematic giving if we're not giving systematically. I can't call you to sacrificial giving if we're not giving sacrificially. But these practices of walking away and time off and celebrating the successes of others and helping young leaders, uh, I'm looking at Ricky Cox over there. He's awfully proud as I am of his son-in-law, Nick Crawford. And the joy it was to have Nick shine as a leader in this church. And some of y'all, honestly, uh, I mean, the place was packed when we said goodbye to Nick. And, and uh, you were crying and stuff. I'm glad some of you came back. Nick became uh, your pastor in many ways. A friend of mine back there, like, they didn't ask me to do their wedding. They asked Nick to do their wedding. Anyway, um, <laughs> these things are good for me. Uh, we have good young leaders. It's important to send people out. It's important to share roles and responsibilities. And these are ways everybody, and my wife is, is along with the Holy Spirit, is there to remind me there are ways and means that I need to decrease so that Jesus can increase in our lives and in the life of our church. I want to ask you, how about you? Y'all quit judging me right now. How about you? What practices, rhythms, what habits, what means do you have to decrease? Listen, this isn't a, you know, humility is not looking down on yourself. It's not being a worm. It's not being low. It's not being a pathetic spectacle. Um, but it's putting Jesus first and realizing that it's not about you. I challenge you to look at the world, the people that you know, celebrities or people across town or in your circle. Uh, find me a proud person who's happy. They don't exist. So a good leader is, number one, a servant. Secondly, a good leader is a steward. In verses 1 and 2 there, he uses the word manager. I've been reading lately from the Christian Standard Bible. Did y'all notice that? Um, this, um, a lot of the English Bibles uh, use this word that I put up on the highlight here as a steward. Um, the Greek word is oikonomos. Uh, it's uh, made up of two words, oiko meaning house and nemo meaning to manage. The connotations here, the Corinthians would have got it. I hope you will today. Uh, you're called to manage a house. Remember last week, Paul used three metaphors in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, you're a field, you're a building, you're a temple. You're building something and let God grow you. Uh, Paul planted, Apollos water, but God causes the growth. You're a building. Don't build your life on wood, hay, and straw. Build it on gold and silver and precious stones. Here he's saying that you're part of the household of God. We, we read, we picked up in chapter 4, verse 1. At the end of chapter 3, he's saying that collectively we're a temple. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to get there. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Jesus Christ, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, sleep and rest. Daniel mentioned this a moment ago. Sleep and rest matter. Diet and exercise matter. Managing your stress it matters. These things matter. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How you possess yourself. Do not follow the world's sexual ethic. Don't compromise in that area. And if you have, confess and repent. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but we together, this is the bigger message of Corinthians, we together are the temple. We need to manage the household of God well. We need to manage our house well. We need to be good stewards of what God has given us. So look real quick at a few passages uh, that Paul would say in the New Testament, one from Jesus here, but first Titus 1.3, and, and which now at his appointed season, he has brought us to light through the preaching, here's the word, entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. If you're a steward, if you're a manager, 
you're entrusted with something. One of Jesus' most impactful parables was a story of three people who were entrusted with something and one buried it. You remember that, that story there? Profound implications in business and certainly in life and spiritual ripple effects on and on and on. You're entrusted with something. Listen, what are you entrusted with? There's universal entrustment that God gives all of us, but there's unique entrustment. You're entrusted with something that God didn't entrust with me. I'm entrusted with preaching and other things. And maybe for most of you, God has not entrusted that to you. But here Paul is saying, it has been entrusted to me. Hey, Timoth- uh, Titus, it's been entrusted to you to preach the word. Here's the thing. Paul wanted these young preachers to know this, that people m- mostly want Twinkies and Hot Pockets. They want to come to the house of God and sit at the table and have the sugary, salty stuff that fills them up, but that's not good for them. And Paul is telling Timothy and Titus and these other leaders, Epaphroditus, others, hey, give them vegetables. Give them the hard word. Give them the hard truths. That's the only way that we'll grow. That's the only way that you'll grow is to come here and at times not say, hey, preach, I really enjoyed that today. And not to spend your time judging and criticizing unless you say great things about the preacher. But to spend time after this thinking this was hard. This might have hurt This might have convicted me, but this was substantive, and this is what we need. And so preachers, leaders in the church that are entrusted with the Word of God, if you lead a small group, you're entrusted with the Word of God. If you're doing, listen, if you're doing a sermon-based small group, I tell people all the time, that could free you up to be the best leader because you don't have to do another study. You don't have to teach another subject. The preacher's already taught. All you have to do is facilitate that discussion. It's really easy. Some of you can lead a group, by the way. You don't know it. You could lead a group, especially if it's sermon-based. Groups are never ultimately about the content that we consume. It's really about the community that we build. But the word of God matters, and it certainly matters. This has been entrusted to me. Look what he would say in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Timothy, guard what this other was Titus. This is Timothy. Guard what has been what? Entrusted to your care. What a beautiful phrase. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Do you know that you don't have to answer everything on social media? Do you know that you don't have to offer some cogent and lucid expositional argumentation against every bad idea of the world brings to you? Do you know that? Do you know that you can walk away from some things? Do you know that it's really important, and pastors especially are getting lured in to give some strong opinion on every matter under the sun? And I love it when we can speak, when you can speak into culture. That's a sign of a maturing leader, but you don't have to answer everything. And oftentimes it's the better part of valor to walk away. And focus on what matters. Hey, this word of God has been entrusted to your care. It's not something flimsy. If you have a job or you have a responsibility and it's flimsy, you're not bringing value. And that's not how God designed you. He designed you to be entrusted with this purpose, with this vocation, with this responsibility, and to care that you've been trusted with it. The best leaders I know are leaders who care. Apathy is a silent, slow killer. It's not the scandalous stuff of the headlines. It's not the fleshly sins that garner attention. But apathy, not not understanding, not appreciating, not valuing what you've been entrusted to really matters. Look what Jesus would say in Luke 16.10. I bet everybody, even if you're not a Christian uh, here today, I bet you've heard this. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. This is the role of a steward. A good leader is what? A good leader is a servant, and a good leader 
is a steward. What have you been entrusted with? Do you care and are you guarding it? Thirdly, a good leader is a, is a spiritual example. You'll see this in verse 6. He says, follow our example. Later in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, this is pretty clear. He says, follow us as we follow Christ. Are you able to say that you don't have to be perfect? You don't have to have it all together. You need to f- be able to say as a leader, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. He was a spiritual, a good leader is a spiritual example. Now he goes on to talk about this in verses 14 and 15. He says, did you see this? Hey, you're, you're our spiritual children. Uh, you have these mentors, but you've been lacking a father. You've been lacking a strong spiritual figure. A couple of years ago, I hearkened back to some early mentoring in my life, and I reconnected with a man named David English. As I began to think about this phase of my life, and I don't have many phases left of my life probably. Uh, Susan gets all pouty when I talk this way, but um, I'm just not young anymore, Susan. Can we talk in front of all them? But I've, I've just been thinking about a calling, and for me, what God has entrusted me with is to preach the word and to lead men. I want to help men become godly men. I want to help men move away from the lies that we believe and to the confusion in our culture. I'm, look, I'm, I'm down with the patriarchy. I'm not, I don't want to promote something. Some of y'all are hearing something I'm not saying now. So I don't want to, I don't want to perpetuate this. But I, I'm just thinking of Paul and Titus and Timothy. And I was th- thinking about the phases of a man's life. And this is pertinent to women too. Okay, just remember I'm a man and I, I want to lead men in particular. So that's why I'm doing this now. But in this uh, this phases of a man's life. He talks about a a defining decision early in life and entering the adult world and the minor life transitions, which is from ages 29 to 32, uh, having a priority decision ages 33 to to, to 39, and then major life transition, and then mature adulthood, and then the the phases of, this is a weird way to do this, isn't it? And then the, the, the legacy stage, and then the stage of a sage. These are your latter years if God gives them to you. And here in this I just I was thinking of Timothy and Titus and these guys over here. I was thinking of Paul in the legacy stage, and of course in Second Timothy chapter four verse seven eight he says, "I've fought the good fight, I've I've run the race, I've finished the course that's been now you know there's entrusted to me. I'm I'm looking for those uh, rewards like one who's lived fully and lived well. He was beginning uh, to relent, but in these stages I think of." Timothy and Titus, I think of young men in the room, I think of young people in the room and our need for mentors and spiritual mothers and fathers. And I love the contrast that he talks about. I think of Titus and Timothy, how they were facing fears, they were facing realities, how they were wondering if they should be firm in their faith and how they were uh, living with these internal battles between uh, rest and pleasure and leisure and meaning and purpose and ambition. And toward the end, uh, this writer, David English, talks about the phases of our lives. And he talks about these um, polarities, these opposites that define the time of great effectiveness in somebody's life. He talks about uh, being a taker or being a giver, uh, being a safety seeker or being a risk taker, wounding others or empowering others. By the way, there's a time uh, in mature adulthood, somewhere in this phase of major life transition and mature adulthood when everybody deals with the wounds of their past. 
when everybody's got to go back and you thought you were done with all that and you, you're facing things now in a new stage of your life where you have to face that and you have to say, am I going to bury this stuff or am I going to seek reconciliation? Am I going to let God turn me into an emotionally mature and healthy disciple? so that I won't inflict this pain on others. And so we need counselors and we need counseling and we need spiritual mothers and fathers. Titus 2 speaks to women as well. Remember, I'm just a man and I'm doing this man's thing. Um, But wounding others or empowering others, loneliness or bonding. Criteria for leaving a legacy, a mission that transcends self, an investment that is relational, a legacy that endures, that fulfills the desires of the heart, a good work that is God-focused and directed. At the end, he talks about, and I think this becomes Paul later in his life, there are two separate paths that men and everybody generally walks to determine the value of how they lived life. The first path is it leads to becoming a sage. Here a man relates well to others, views covenant relationships as a priority, and is characterized by bonding, by togetherness, by worthiness, and focus upon God and others. The inevitable results will be gratitude, thankfulness, empowering others, and assuming personal responsibility. The other path is an independent spirit of self-will, of self-determination. Identity in life comes from performance and accomplishments, And they're more important than relationships. This is the path of isolation, of separation, of wounding, and of self-focus. The inevitable results will be bitterness, entitlement, victimization, and the wounding of others. We need spiritual fathers. We need spiritual mothers. We need multi-generational discipleship. Uh, We need to learn to look to people who are the examples. A good leader is a servant. A good leader is a steward. A good leader is a spiritual example. And lastly, as Lauren and the team come up, a a good leader is a spectacle of suffering. In the latter part of this verse, he says things that are just not pleasant to modern American Christians. This doesn't translate to us. Like when Jesus would say in Luke 9, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When he talks about taking up your cross, living in self, not taking up your cross daily and following. When we read Hebrews 11 and we see faith's hall of fame, we see these people who were martyred. And Paul talks about, uh, he talks about death in this passage. I, I don't think he fully knew the death he would experience. Martin Luther, the reformer of old, said, that we want a theology of glory, but we're called to a theology of the cross. And the theology of glory is we live the lie that God's gonna bless us. And there's plenty of verses taken out of context that can prove the life that we wanna live of glory. And that God will, uh, every uh, earthly obedience that I give to him, he'll give me an earthly blessing right then and there. There's no patience, no waiting, no surrender. But we're called, and you see it all in Corinthians, we're called not to a theology of glory, but to a theology of the cross, to cruciform life, where it's a life that's poured out. If you live for the reward of earth, you can get it. But it's a life of emptiness. So would you stand with me? I want to ask you today as we close, this spring break, spring forward, rainy day Sunday, I want want you to ask God, where are you in this trust world, in the economies of trust?
to what extent could we say you have trust issues? It's a level playing field. You've heard me say we all do. These days it seems more than ever. How can you let God heal you to trust and to be trustworthy? And if you're going to lead, you need to be trustworthy. I love it. I don't have time to preach it today, but it says here in one of these verses in 1 Corinthians 4 that Paul's saying, hey, I've been consistent in all the churches. And I love that. That got me as I studied this week. Like Same man, same message, consistent in all the churches. To be trustworthy to be a servant, to be a steward who's worthy of trust, to be a spiritual example, to be a spectacle that God has called us to be. We need that consistency. Can people count on you? Is your word good? Do you show up? Are you there for others? Let me pray for us. God, we, when we mention church hurt, we don't want to bypass the depth of woundedness it can mean. And in some ways, it's kind of funny. We live in a country that is founded on distrust. We didn't like taxation without representation, so we said goodbye to Great Britain and we came over here. And we didn't trust each other. We said no monarchy, no royalty. Let's have three branches of government. So something built in us, and some of that can be so good and healthy. Checks and balances are needed the level of cynicism it's deep and it's wounding us and it's hurting our institutions of family and government and church so Lord lead us to be leaders lead us to be vulnerable lead us to have the courage to be a spectacle to the world of a life lived differently a life on mission. For older people that are on the sidelines, I pray that you would get them in the game to speak of their stories, to seek healing and to find it in community, even mentoring younger people. Give that to us as a body of Christ. Greater connectivity, greater healing, greater health, greater trust. In Jesus we pray. Church, the altar is open. We would love for you to come and kneel or uh, we'll be down front to pray over you. If God is leading you in anything to join our church, to be baptized, to make a spiritual decision, to seek wisdom in something in your life, let's use this time for prayer. You come today.